I set him up for failure. I forgot I took the pulpit mic away. So that's why he did one of these right here. So let me just move this out of the way. If you've been here the past couple of weeks, I hope that sounded a little familiar. There is a lot of um, just similarities between Jude's letter and 2 Peter. So I just thought it'd be just sort of neat to read it and, and look at that a little bit today uh, before we get started. But before I preach, let's just pray together. Father, I just pray that you use me. God, I pray that I'm in tune with your spirit, that it's you that speaks, not me. God, I pray that, again, as a church, we can just uh, learn some valuable lessons and reminders about who you are and the love that we've received from Jesus, your son. So I just pray, again, that our hearts will be transformed. God, I pray that we leave here today not the same as we came in, but we leave loving you more and having our hearts being transformed by your word. We love you and we thank you so much. In your name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, you could turn to the book of Jude. I am glad to say that we're ending it today. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that. That sounds negative. But I'll just say the Spirit directed me. We're ending it today, four weeks through the book of Jude. Today is the fourth week. It's amazing how much you can just unpack from God's word. How many times I've read through this letter, these 25 verses from Jude, and I'm like, oh, this is, this is nice, this is cute. And then just studying it in depth, there's so much more than just what's on the surface here in his little 25 verses. As I mentioned before, 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, the book of Jude has 25 verses. About 19 of those verses are very similar to 2 Peter's. Uh, letter. So we're going to read a little bit that, that Jude rem, uh, sort of says, remember what the apostle, remember what Peter says. So thank you, Matt, wherever he went for reading that long chapter. Um, so if you have your Bibles, hopefully you're there. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He's the full brother of James, the same James that wrote the book of James in the Bible. And this letter was written about 40 years after Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll, we'll read the whole book and I'll, I'll sort of stop after each couple verses, uh, sort of how I, I just took a week and I went through like verse 1 to 4 of the first week, verses 5 to 11 the next. And, and after each break, I'll just do a quick, quick summary, nothing too long. If you'd like to listen to some, some things, uh, you can go online and, and look back at some previous sermons if you want to know a little bit deeper of what, what Jude's talking about. But let's just read together Jude. We'll start at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So we'll stop there for just a second. What is Jude saying? He's sort of saying, hello, my friends, my brothers in Christ. I was going to write to you a nice, encouraging letter about the salvation and the faith that we all share in Jesus Christ. He says, however, I felt a burden. I felt mandated to write to you about something else. He says, I'm writing to you to contend for your faith. And what that means is the fight for truth. And the first week we looked at how truth is under attack. In Jude's time, and it's also true for our time, even looking back when Jesus was here, truth has always been under attack. So Jude is saying to his brothers in the Lord, be on guard, be alert. False apostates or false teachers are here. They've arrived. Second Peter alludes to them coming, and we'll look at that in a little bit. And Jude says, no, 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 they're here. The enemy is here. And apostates, just so we're all on the same page, what I mean by apostates are these are false teachers who know the truth of God, yet they reject him for their own truth. They know who God is. They can even say, yeah, we, we know that God's the creator. So they say, so what? We don't care. It's all about me. And they're very selfish and prideful and arrogant. It's all about them. So when we say apostates, that, that's what we're saying. In the book of Hebrews, the author says, that they even can taste the Holy Spirit and, and see the miracles and see the Spirit moving in the church and see the power of God. Yet he says if it were up to them, if they had to decide, they would crucify Jesus all over again on the cross. They would choose to kill Jesus. That is a hatred to Jesus. So we looked at truth is under attack. The apostates are here. Let's keep reading. 
Now I want to remind you, verse 5, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And two weeks ago, those were our verses as we slowly worked through Jude. And what is he saying? He's saying it doesn't matter if you're a part of God's chosen nation, if you're a Jewish person. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, if you're outside of God's chosen nation. It doesn't even matter if you're a heavenly being, an angel. If you know God and reject God, you're an apostate, and what's coming for you? Judgment. Judgment is coming for those who know who God is and reject him. And what we looked at, that's sort of the the bad news, right? If you're not in Christ, if you don't um, pursue Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you haven't repented from your sins, judgment is coming for you. And we looked at the flip side, however, if we are in Christ as Christians, we have grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, and joy and peace because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. These are hidden reefs. These meaning these, these false teachers, these apostates. They're hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. They're shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And that's what we looked at last week. And what's the sort of the truth of what we read last week? That judgment is still coming, right? Judgment is still coming. He's still talking about judgment for apostates. But he also, he relates these apostates. He, he tells you about their character, how they act, who they are, based on nature metaphors from verses 12 and 13. And we went slowly through each one of those, and we looked at how each one of those characters opposed the character of Christ. And it's sort of cool, if you line up the I am statements of Jesus, they almost opposite mirror who the apostates are compared to who Jesus is. Their character opposes that of Jesus Christ. And now we get to today, our our very last sermon through Book's letter. Let's continue reading verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So if you have your notes... Hopefully you got your bulletin. If you have your notes, I'm going to go through and give you some of the big blanks. Uh, there's four main points for today. I was, I was really tempted to break up point number four and make that part five of Jude's letter, but I said, no, I, I could fit it. I'll throw it in there. Um, so point number one we're going to be looking at today, I titled it a, a Call to Persevere. 
right? A call to fight for the truth, a call to fight for the faith. And Jude's going to tell the believers, how do they do this? How do you remain strong fighting for the truth despite everything going on around, society, apostates, all this heresy? Point number one, he says, to remember the apostles' predictions. Remember the apostles' predictions. Number two, he says, keep yourselves in God's love. And point number three, he says to have mercy or to show mercy. So remember apostles' predictions, keep yourselves in God's love, have mercy. And then number four, we read about Jude's encouraging doxology. So let's just dive right in. Point number one here, remember the apostles' predictions. Verse 17, but you must remember, beloved, same word as he says in in verse one, right, to those who are beloved in God, But you remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So first and foremost, what is Jude telling them? Remember what the apostles said. Know what you're up against. Know that the apostates are here. In 2 Peter chapter 3, right, Matt just read the whole second chapter of 2 Peter, but the next chapter, Peter says this, first of all, or knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So Jude is taking second, or, or taking Peter's prophecy in 2 Peter 3 and putting it in his letter here. So he's saying, remember the apostles. What does that mean? He's saying, remember what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3. And this word scoffer, it's somebody who mocks, It's a word that's attributed to false teachers, to to apostates. And this word only appears in the Greek in Jude and in 2 Peter. So that's how we even know for sure that that Jude is borrowing or Jude is alluding to Peter's prophecy, right? To to Peter, that apostle, and what really he said. Remember what Peter said. He says, false teachers will come in the last days. Whenever I read the Bible and I see that, that phrase, last days or last time, uh, sometimes you can get a little bit confused, but that, that phrase last days or last time, it refers to the time period between Jesus Christ's first coming and his second coming. So Jude is writing to a group of people who are in the last time. We are in the last time because Christ, as far as I know, has not returned for his second coming. And we alluded to that. He, uh, we will know if when he comes at his second coming from Enoch's prophecy a little bit sooner in Jude that we looked at last week. Again, this phrase last time it occurs in Acts, Galatians, 2 Timothy, Hebrews, 1 and 2 Peter, here in Jude. Jude reminding his audience, his readers, the believers, to look back, look at the warnings that the truth of the gospel is under attack from these apostates. And I just love that Jude just keeps nailing that hammer of who these apostates are by just attacking or, or really revealing their character. And he, he gives us more insights of additional characteristics of the apostates. Uh, If you have your notes, letter A, we see that they follow their own ungodly passions. And we looked at last week that since their hearts have not been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, since they do not have Christ within them, God within them, all they can do is pursue their own ungodly desire. They're slaves to their sin. They're slaves to their lusts. Letter B, we see that apostates, they cause division. And this is probably one of the key motivation or or sort of behind why false teachers behave this way. Their goal is to pull people away from the truth, right, to divide, to pull them away and say, hey, no, no, come join me. It's almost like that that when watching Star Wars, when, you know, Luke's before Darth Vader says, join me, right, come to my side. Did I just really compare Jude to Star Wars? Yes, I'm I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) That wasn't in my notes. So again, their goal is to pull away people from Christ and to cleverly manipulate them for their own selfish gain, their own desires. And false teachers, what they do is they, they tend to portray themselves as, as superior. Jude says that, that they're puffed up, they're, they're arrogant, they're loudmouthed, they're prideful, they boast as somebody who's morally or religious superior. And really, I think of one group in the Bible that, that encountered Jesus who was like this, and it was the Pharisees. They were arrogant, they were condescending, they were prideful, they were boastful. Uh, They followed their own agenda. So again, these these Pharisees, right, apostates, because they knew God, right, but they rejected the truth of Jesus, that blinded them from following Jesus, 
for knowing that Jesus was their Lord and Savior. And instead of putting others before themselves, apostates, they exalt themselves. They put themselves first. They build themselves up. It's all about them. They go directly against Jesus' command to humble yourself. I think of the story of when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It's the, it's the night before Jesus' crucifixion. It's, it's right before Passover, and his disciples are arguing. Right? The night before Jesus' death, he spent three years with these guys, right? And he, I don't know, but Jesus might be saying, man, how do they not get it yet? But he's looking around, he sees their proud hearts, and they're arguing all about who's the greatest. Right? They're like, I'm, well, I'm going to be the greatest. I'm going to sit at the right hand of God. It's all about me. I want to be the greatest. And what Jesus does is he sees their proud hearts. He sees their dirty feet. They didn't even wash their feet before they were going to have a meal to celebrate, really, the, the Passover. It was the Last Supper. And Jesus stoops down, takes the role of a servant, right, and washes their feet. Shocking. P- I love Peter. He's like, no, no, you, you can't wash my feet. You're, you, you're, not, you, you're too worthy for that. And Jesus says, no, no, i got to wash your feet. And he says, what I have done to you, do likewise to other. Right? And he tells them, if you want to be the best, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, what do you have to be? A servant to all. Jesus was a servant to all. Apostates serve only themselves. In Philippians chapter 2, why don't you turn there, Philippians chapter 2. This is probably one of my, I have a lot of favorite chapters, but this is one of my favorite chapters where Paul just breaks down really Christ's humility and because of what Christ has done, how should we be acting as Christians, as Christ followers? Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, we should be doing that because look at what Jesus did. did. He humbled himself, even being obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. So we see Jesus is the ultimate example for how we should be acting. We lift others. We, we exalt others before ourselves. And we see that the apostates, they don't do that. As Jude says, they're, they're shepherds who feed only themselves. All they care about is, is me, is themselves. And then letter C, right, of the additional characteristics of apostates, Jude says they're worldly people. And he even goes and says they're devoid of the spirit. Right, they're, they're focused on worldly things, things of this earth. Their, their eyes, their mind, their hearts are down here. They're on the here and now, this world. And this is really the opposite as, as to what we should act and how we should act as Christians. The Bible says in, in James 4 that friendship with the world is being an enemy to God. That in 1 John, if anyone loves the world, the Father is not in him. Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed. Don't let this world shape you. Don't be shaped by the patterns of this world. Jesus in John 15, he tells us this truth that Jesus chose us out of the world so that the world is going to hate us. Don't be surprised because Jesus chose us out of the world. And then in Matthew 6, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Right? So apostates are focused on the here and now. They're focused on, on what can I get now? Right? It's all about me. They're, they're sort of blinders. Right? All they can see is what's in front of them. They want the desires of their heart. And as Christians, that's not what we should be doing. Jude also says they're devoid of the spirit. Right? They're, they're physically alive, but spiritually they're dead. They do not have the spirit within them. They're religious frauds whose hearts have not been regenerated, have not been changed by the Holy Spirit. They offer lip service to God, but ultimately they deny him with their hearts and by their actions. So again, what does he say? Remember the apostles' predictions. Remember what what Peter said. They're here. The apostates are here. Fight for the truth. Remember or know what you're up against. Number two, how can we how can we have a call to persevere? How can we fight for our truth? Jude tells his 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 believers that he's writing to to keep yourselves in God's love. Keep yourselves in God's love. 
He says in verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And I love this because Jude offers three ways to keep ourselves in God's love. He just doesn't say, all right, keep yourself in God's love and let's, let's move on and I got to keep going. No, no, no. He, he sort of breaks it down and gives us three tips of how to stay in God's love. Letter A, he says, build yourselves up. Build yourselves up. And this is a call to become doctrinally strong so that we're able to discern, decipher, decide, recognize between what's error and what's truth. What is the, the truth of Christ and what is an abomination or the falseness of, of really who Christ is, the apostates? This is not an option. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, you know, you should just, you know, try your best to just grow in your faith. You know, try your best to just to stay in God's love and to go to church and do things. It's not an option. Building yourselves up, it centers around studying God's word and learning to apply it. And I'll be honest, I'm guilty as probably most of us in here. Sometimes we're, we're at the end of the day and we're like, oh, I forgot to read my Bible. I'll read two chapters tomorrow. And then tomorrow you're like, I forgot to read. All right, I'll do three chapters the next day, right? It's a constant battle to stay in God's word, but we're called to build ourselves up. In Acts chapter 20, Paul's talking to the elders in Ephesus and the Ephesian church, and he commends them and he says to be built up in God's word. In 2 Peter uh, or First Peter chapter 2, Peter says that believers should be growing in their salvation and growing in their faith, like an infant who outgrows milk, who outgrows formula, and goes to solid food. So should Christians be in our faith. We mature in our faith. In First John, John calls those who are in God's word spiritually strong. So there's this connection between being spiritually strong and abiding or remaining in God's love and God's word. Growing in knowledge of God's word will better equip us to contend for the faith, to fight for the truth, because we'll be able to discern between truth and error. Paul tells us that for spiritual battle, our weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is, do you know the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? There it is. And I love it. When Jesus combats Satan in the wilderness, what does Jesus use as his sort of offensive move to Satan? Scripture. He quotes God's word, and yes, Satan's quoting, quotes God's word as well, but Satan's perverting it and twisting it. But Jesus, he knows his word because he is God. It's his word. He combats Satan with his word. And I thought of an analogy, and, and just bear with me with this one. Have you ever give, or gave a kid a dollar bill, right? Maybe some of you have. Uh, as an uncle, I, I've done this before, and I've just sort of teased my, my nephews and nieces. And I'm like, all right, here's your dollar. But, you know, for your dollar, if you give me this piece, this one piece of paper, I'll give you five shiny nickels. Look at them. Look how shiny they are. I'll, I'll give you these nickels. Just give me that dollar bill. And what do kids do? Yeah, I'll take five nickels instead of a dollar because this is boring, right? This is, this is ugly. This is not shiny. There's only one of these, and kids get five of these, five shiny nickels. Listen, you can hear them jingle. That's exciting. And in that same way, right, kids, they don't have that discernment. They're not able to, to tell that this is more valuable than this. And in the same way as Christians, we have to know God's word. We have to build ourselves up in it because we need to be able to discern between truth and error. What's the dollar bill and what's the nickels? What is more valuable? What is the truth? The second thing that Jude says, letter B, he says to pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. And I was reading some commentaries and listening to some people preach through this, and I don't think this refers to, to praying in tongues and praying in the Spirit that way, but rather it's what's, pray for what's consistent with the Spirit's will for us. What's the Spirit's desire? What's His direction? What's His will for us? In Romans chapter 8, this is what Paul says, and this might clue you in a little bit as to what this means. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we learn something. The Holy Spirit who dwells within us, he intercedes to the Father before us. Before us. He prays to the Father before us with, with genuine sympathy, with genuine love. 
And when we pray in the Holy Spirit, what we're doing is we're submitting ourselves to him. We're submitting our, 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 ourselves to, to his wisdom, to his will, to his trust, or trusting his power. And my prayer, whenever I preach, whenever I share the gospel, whether it's at youth group here at church or lead worship, is from 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Paul says, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not, one translation says, extinguish. Don't put out the Holy Spirit. So every time I preach, every time I pray, I say, please, Spirit, let me be in tune with you. Let me be on, 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 on your will, on your desire, on your power. And sometimes when I preach, the Holy Spirit takes me this way, away from my notes, and I'm like, oh, I don't, my notes are safe. Leave me in my notes, right? But sometimes to be in tune with the Spirit is to allow him to lead you, right? Don't stifle that. And other times I'm like, nope, I'm going to stay to my notes, and then I realize I've stifled the Spirit. And then other times I'm like, all right, that was my emotion. Maybe I shouldn't say that, right? I have to discern this in my head. And how do I discern this? By being spiritually mature, by knowing the Spirit, by building myself up. So again, build yourselves up, pray in the Spirit. And the third sort of tip that Jude tells his, uh, his believers that he's speaking to is to wait anxiously, letter C, wait anxiously for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. What does that mean? It means to live with eternity in view, to eagerly anticipate the Lord's return. And if you want to write this verse down, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I'll read it, but just you can go there later or, or write down and go to it later. But he says, the author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance that the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. And what that does, is it reminds you of a song lyric. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So when we eagerly wait, when we eagerly anticipate and have eternity in our mind of, of Christ's return, it gets our minds off of the here and now. It gets our minds off of ourselves, off of our own trials, and it encourages us, encourages us to press forward, to, to run the race, to, to not look back. Don't let that stuff hinder us, but to look forward, press towards the mark of the prize, as, as Paul says, for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As we long to spend eternity in heaven with our Lord and our Savior, having an eternal perspective helps us to love others and to love Jesus more and more. So again, Jude is saying, how do you persevere Remember the predictions of Peter. Keep yourselves in God's love. How? Build yourselves up. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Wait anxiously. Have an eternal perspective in your life. And then number three, he says to have mercy, to show mercy. Verse 22. And to have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And as Christians, I hope most of us know this, but we're called to go and make disciples of all nations. We don't pick and choose who to tell Jesus to or who, who to tell Jesus to in our lives. Like we're just like, oh, I don't really like this person. I don't want them to know Jesus. We, we don't do that. That's not our call, right? We're called to go and to disciple everybody, the whole world, even our enemy with the truth. And what Jude does is he breaks down sort of three different groups of people. If you read that, and, and we'll read it again here, we'll go slowly through it, but he breaks down three different groups of unbelievers that are currently in the midst of these believers. He says the first one are the doubters. Have mercy on those who doubt. And these are unbelievers who have been either confused by false teachers, who are very immature in their faith, who are sort of carried about by every wind of doctrine. You know, they hear one thing like, oh, that, that sounds good. And then someone else says this, and like, oh, well, that sounds really good too. I want, I want that, right? They just go with the flow, depending on who's, who tells them what. They're caught in webs of lies and deception. They don't know the truth. They're not mature. Jude calls the believers to have mercy, to show these people mercy. He says, show them or show them mercy with kindness, with compassion, with sympathy. I love that Jesus modeled this principle on earth. Those who are confused, who are unsure, who are filled with doubt, he gently and patiently and lovingly gave them the gospel. Right, key words, gently, patiently, and lovingly gave them the gospel. 
In John chapter 4, we read about Jesus and the Samaritan woman who's at the well. In John chapter 6, we see Jesus feeds the group of 5,000 people, and he says, I am the bread of life. And with each of these stories, Jesus gently and lovingly presents himself to these these two different stories, these two different people. But false preachers, they they prey on those who are weak, right? Christians who are strong and mature in their faith, faith, we must show mercy to those who are torn between error and truth. And this doesn't mean that we ignore their sin, it doesn't mean that we just say, oh, okay, well, you're doing everything, and that's okay, you're, you're okay. No, no, even Jesus in these two stories, in John chapter 4, he calls out that woman in her sin. He gives her the, the grace and the beauty of, of the gospel, and he tells, he reveals himself to her, but he also points out her sin in her life. But he does it lovingly. The same thing with the crowd of people. They just want another meal, and Jesus says, I'm not giving you another meal. I'm going to give you myself. I am the bread of life. I alone can satisfy you. And it's funny because we see that that crowd that quickly gathered together quickly went away because they thought they were having another meal. No, Jesus showed them mercy, right? But he also did it lovingly and kindly and lovingly. So show mercy on those who doubt. The next people or, or group of people that Jude breaks down here is those who are in the fire, He says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. So this next group of unbelievers, it's a little bit more of a challenge. They're more challenging. This is a call to show mercy to those who are already convinced of false teaching. Those who have already bought in to what other people are selling, the lies they're selling. Again, we must be willing to be used by God to be faithful and to save others. And we have to know that God still remains the ultimate source of salvation. God alone saves and redeems sinners. It's not my job to transform people's hearts. People do not get the Holy Spirit because of me. It's not about me. It's God. However, throughout Scripture, we see that God uses us as a secondary means to reach sinners. And I was going through the book of Acts and and just sort of going through some of the early stories of the church growing and believers turning to Christ. And just listen to some of the language that's here. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches at Pentecost. He preaches the gospel to the people. And it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to their heart. The people believed because of Peter's words, but ultimately it was God who transformed their hearts. Peter was just a vessel, a tool that God used. He was a secondary means to reach the sinners. And we learn that 3,000 people were baptized that day. A little later, Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested. And as they're getting arrested and given the gospel soul, it says, many of those who heard the word believed. Just one verse, that's what it says. And then the next verse, it casually just drops, hey, only 5,000 people were saved that day. I'm like, what? 5,000 people? So 3,000 and 5,000 people? Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip gives him the good news of the gospel, and what do we read? That he believes because of what, because of what Philip says, and he gets baptized. Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, they're speaking out boldly against the Jewish people who are going against their word. And it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many of them as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So yes, God still remains the ultimate source. He transforms people's hearts and minds. He gives them his spirit. But we're called to go and make disciples. We're called to, to share the gospel with people. And this word snatching that Jude alludes to here, or Jude uses, it's sort of a, an intense word. It, it means to seize something or, or to sort of take it by force, like, like take it back, take it by force. And Jude is picturing these people as having been singed by the fires of hell. Like they're that close to hell. They're on their way to hell. Everything they're following, their lives are drawing them to condemnation and the damnation of hell because of the doctrines of the error that they're following because of apostasy. A gentle, compassionate gospel message is not what these unbelievers need. They need their false beliefs crushed by the power of God's truth. The word that Jude uses, snatch, it's sort of a a violent word there or an aggressive word to to take back, right, out of force. And let me just give you a practical example of how Jesus dealt with these sort of people. Those who are committed to false teachings, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, Jesus bluntly warned them of the gravity of their lost condition. 
If you just want to jot these verses down and look at them later, don't take my word for it. Read what Jesus calls these people. In Matthew 15, he says, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrite. In Luke chapter 11, verse 37 to 54, it's that woe to you section where Jesus just goes off on these Pharisees saying, Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Right? Very blunt and aggressive but loving language. John chapter 8 as well, we see that these um, Pharisees attribute everything that Jesus is doing to the father of demons, that Jesus is doing it on the demonic sort of power. And then Jesus says, no, 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 you have it all wrong. And then he says, before Abraham I was. And you, it's, it's, it's sort of cool to see the dialogue between Jesus and these, and these Pharisees there. So again, like Jesus, being blunt and direct is more loving to those who need to understand that the path they're heading down leads to damnation and eternal death. Right, everything we read previously in Jude, that's what's waiting for those who are not in Christ. This is not an excuse to be rude or to be arrogant. It's a call to speak the truth clearly and boldly in love. And I thought of an analogy, and this, this might fail or it might fall short, but this phrase, tough love, I'm sure most of us have heard this where you said, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to show my, my son or daughter, they need tough love. Right? Tough love, if not done well, leads to abuse. Right? It leads to not love at all. However, tough love, if done correctly, is what that person needs. Right? Now, I thought of sort of the, the shepherds, right? Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. And the shepherds have two tools. They have the, the rod and they have their staff. Their staff has the little crooked end. They could draw the sheep back very nicely and gently to them. Another time, sheep need a little, you know, whack in their butt to be obedient. Right? Same way for what Jude's saying. Some of the people need love and grace and mercy. Right? Show them mercy with, with love and patience but with others, you need to boldly proclaim the gospel and the error of their way because being gentle and compassionate is not what they need. They need a little whack over the head with the Bible. In love, in love. Right, again, it's not an excuse to be mean or to arrogant or to be rude. And this is where a lot of Christians just fail. This is where I think Christians have, have harmed the gospel. And that's why I love the beauty of it is we're not Christians. That doesn't mean we follow Christians means we follow Christ because ultimately we are going to fail, right? We are going to fail the ones we love. We are not going to act godly. We're not going to act exactly like Christ throughout our whole life, but we don't follow Christians. If you're a Christian, you follow Jesus Christ and his example. The third thing that Jude tells us here of this, this next challenging group, the most challenging group of people, he says to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So those who are stained, those who are stained. Sometimes as Christians, we have the opportunity to sort of go before the enemy, to go before apostates and apostasy, to go before false teachers and false preachers. And when reaching out, we're to show mercy. So, with, so no matter who we give the gospel to, number one, you show them mercy. But number two, depending on where they are and the seriousness of their lost condition, that's sort of where you have flexibility with how you deal with them in love. Right, but he says to be cautious with these people. Approach them, he says, even with fear. And this fear stems from an awareness that getting too close to these corrupt and evil people, right, these apostates who are in error, could somehow you know, result in, in being tainted by those lies. And there's a few examples of this. In Matthew 16, Jesus warns his disciples. He says, beware of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So even these people who are close to Christ, they're by his side. Jesus still gives them a warning and says, be careful, be on guard, be aware of what they're teaching. Galatians 5, 7, Paul writes to the church, you were running well. How sad is that? You were running well. Who hindered you? Who stopped you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from God who called you. Right? So even Paul's saying, you were running well, but what happened? You defected from the truth. You turned away from the truth. You were, you were brought away by false teaching. And then Jude uses an extremely graphic and, and some sort of coarse language here to highlight the degree of danger involved to showing mercy to these type of people with this type of outreach, with this type of, of evangelism. This word garment, it refers to the clothing that people would wear under their outer tunic. So basically you could say it's, it's their underwear. And then he says it's polluted or, or polluted by the flesh, stained by bodily function, right? And I was like, well, what does this mean? This is weird. And I was reading through a commentary, and this is what the author said, and I just love this description. 
says, just as no one wants to handle someone else's dirty underwear and be physically defiled, so should we be extremely wary of getting too close to the spiritual defilement of those corrupted by the false teachers. Even in bringing the gospel to committed apostates, the saints must exercise great caution and wisdom. And this alludes to Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus is about to send his 12 disciples off right, to go preach the gospel, to go door to door, tell them about, about Jesus. He says to them, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He says, So be wise. Be wise as serpents, and be as innocent or as pure as doves. Don't be defiled. So from Jude, again, it's clear that no matter who we're talking to as believers and who this church is talking to as believers, you have to show mercy. Everybody deserves mercy. That's not our call to say, yeah, this person doesn't deserve mercy. That just goes against what Jesus says. He says to pray for your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Even those who you hate, you're not supposed to hate them. You're supposed to love them. You love your enemies. You show them mercy. Even the worst enemies, the apostates who hate Jesus and probably would want to kill you because they want to kill Christ, right? Even Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations, not just some, not just the people that are close to us, not just the people that won't hurt us, but make disciples of everybody. So again, Jude's telling them, how do you contend for your faith? How do, how do you fight for the truth? He tells them, remember the apostles' predictions. Keep yourselves in God's love. And then he says to have mercy, show mercy. And then as, I, as we close through Jude here, as I'm, I'm almost wrapping it up, the fourth thing that we'll just look at this morning is number four, Jude's encouraging doxology. Let's read that, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jude ends his letter with a word of praise. That's what doxologies are. They're, they're a word of praise to God. Right? Jude just couldn't bottle that in. He couldn't just keep that in. He had to praise God for who he was or for who he is. So in contrast to his warnings, right, the, the first, I love Jude, it opens up with a nice reminder of, of who you are in Christ, that you are loved, you're kept, you're called. He gives the people a blessing, but then he says judgment's coming. He goes into a huge judgment on these heresies, on these false teachers and what they're going to be facing in the, in the end days. And then he ends his letter with a beautiful reminder of who God is, right? It negates fear, it brings joy, it promises hope for our future, it reminds us of the faithfulness and the power of God. And really, with this doxology, I, I'm just going to hit the surface of these two main points here. I'm not going to go very deep. But we learn two things from this. We learn, number one, we cannot lose what God has given us. We can't lose what God has given us. When you read through the New Testament, it's, it's really clear. As a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation. In Jude's letter, he starts by telling his readers, reminding them that you are kept by Jesus. And by the end, he reminds them the same thing, that it's Jesus who keeps them from stumbling. If you want to get fancy and put a title, this is called the Doctrine of the Perseverance of the Saints. And it really just, uh, the two main pillars of, of this theology is John chapter 10, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, my sheep know my voice. He says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, God chose us solely on the basis of what? Of who we were? No, it's not about us. It's based on his good pleasure, on God's love for us. Salvation is also guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's given to believers as a divine proof of salvation, as, as Paul writes further in Ephesians chapter 1. It's a mark of ownership. And if God saved us solely alone by his grace, his mercy, his love, and there's nothing that we did, then you have to say there's nothing that I can do that will separate me from God. There's nothing that I can do in my power to lose what God has given me. And I've been reading this book by David Kaltfetter. It's called Sinners in the Hands of a Good God. It's sort of a twist on Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this is what he says in one of the chapters. He says, It is conceivable that in spite of all this, Christians may still fall away and be lost. Is it possible for God to predestine us to holiness? and yet we do not become holy? Can he adopt us as children and then disown us? 
Can he give us a guarantee of salvation and then take back his promise? Is the human will so strong to overcome divine power? Surely not. What more does God need to say to assure us that he will uphold us to the end? Right? We can't lose what God's given us. However, on the flip side, you can't use this doctrine of eternal security and then turn around and say, oh, if that's the case, I can do whatever I want. I, I can sin all I want because, hey, God's, God's going to keep me. Right? God, I'll, I'm going to be in God still. No. Paul had to face that, that same sort of attack in Romans chapter 6. And, and really the answer is no, it doesn't give us a license to sin because if you're truly in Christ, if you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've repented from your sins, the Bible says you become a new creation. In 2 Peter it says we've been given a new nature and that nature loves to obey Jesus, loves Jesus so much that we obey him and he's our Lord and our master. So again, it doesn't give us a license to sin because, hey, guess what? God called us, and, and no matter what I can do, I'll, he'll never not love me if he calls me. No, we've been given a new heart, a new nature that longs to be like Jesus, that longs to be like God. And it's sad because you have to think, well, what about those who used to be Christians, right? Or, or they say, oh, you know, I used to go to church, I used to be a Christian. And I think of even really popular authors and preachers, right? People who have more recently just said, you know what? It's all a lie. I, it's, it's not for me. You know, I, I wasted my life following this. I think those who make a profession of faith, right, but then they fall away into, into lifestyles of sin, it reveals that their profession was never really genuine. It, it really shows you who or what is ruling their hearts and their life. It's not Jesus. It's the things of this world. Because what they're saying is, Jesus, you're not enough for me. So I'm just going to go my own way, right? That reveals the desire of their heart is they don't care about Jesus. They care only about themselves and they are slaves of their sin. They're lusting after their sin. So again, we cannot lose what God has given us. God has called us to him and we're kept for by Jesus. And the second point here of his doxology is that it's Jesus who presents us blameless, faultless before the, God, before the throne of God. It's not us. It's not me. It's not based on my own merit. It's not based on being a good person, giving X amount of dollars away to charity about, oh, well, I went to church every day of my life. No, it doesn't matter. It's Jesus alone who presents us blameless before the throne of God. To stand in the presence of God's glory would make any fallen human terrified. And I love one commentary I read. It just listed a bunch of examples of that. You go throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, anybody that encounters a heavenly being, even an angel, right? they fall to their knees and says they're terrified. Isaiah pronounces a curse on himself. Ezekiel fell over like a dead person multiple times. If you read through uh, Ezekiel, he says, I, I fell, I fell, and, and the Spirit held me or lifted me back up with his hand. Peter, James, and John experienced an overwhelming fear on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Apostle John even fainted as one who was dead when he saw the vision of the risen and glorious Christ in Revelation 1. So these people, having come face to face with God's glorious grace, right, the throne of God, each one of these men felt the full weight of their sinfulness. They, in spite of who Jesus is, they knew who they were, that they were unworthy to be in God's presence. They fell to the ground with an overwhelming sense of unworthiness. But what do we read here? It's Jesus. He presents us blameless, faultless before the throne of God. And we're able to draw near to God and stand blameless in his presence because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus gives us his righteousness. We're covered by his blood. Right? If we're in Christ, we're redeemed. We're his children. We've been adopted. And we can have joy while standing in the presence of God. And I alluded to, I think, last week, just a verse, or maybe two weeks ago in Hebrews, where we just, we can draw near to the, to the throne of God with confidence because we're covered by the grace of Jesus Christ. And I want to end with a quote. And I know I've been using a lot of quotes, uh, but I just kept finding some good quotes this week. It's from uh, Spurgeon, one of his sermons. This is what he says. He says, When I heard it said that the Lord would keep his people right to the end, that Christ had said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them the eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anybody pluck them out of my hand. I must confess the doctrine of final preservation of the saints was a bait that my soul could not resist. 
It was a sort of life insurance, an insurance of my character, an insurance of my soul, an insurance of my eternal destiny. I knew that I could not keep myself, but, it, but if Christ had promised to keep me, then I should be safe forever. And I longed and prayed to find Christ because I knew that if I found him, he would not give me a temporary salvation such as some people preach, but eternal life which can never be lost, the living and incorruptible seed which liveth and abideth forever, for no one and nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. What a, what a beautiful reminder. So again, just to recap as I, as I wrap up now for real, I'll, cl- I'll close my Bible here. Right, through Jude's letter, fight for the truth. Fight for your faith. Fight for the faith because the enemy is here. Right? And if you are not in Christ, you can't read through Jude and be like, oh, I guess it's okay to not be in Christ. No, judgment is coming. It's some scary stuff here. And I'm not trying to convince you on fear to come to Jesus. That's not my goal. My goal is to look at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and say, he is worthy of praise. He is God. He loved me and saved me and redeemed me. And Jesus, thank you so much that what you gave me, no one can take away. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this amazing opportunity to just slowly work through your word as a church. God, I pray that as a church, as New Village Church, we can fight for the truth together. I pray, Lord, that you give us the ability to show mercy to everybody. I pray, Lord, that you stir our hearts to want to be in your word, to learn from, you, for, to learn from it, to apply it to our lives. I pray that we build ourselves up. We pray in the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we remain in your love. We thank you so much for what you've done for us, Jesus. We're not worthy of anything, but we praise you. We thank you for the love that you've given us, the amazing grace and the death that you showed us on the cross, the ultimate act of humility and love and sacrifice. So Jesus, we praise you. We thank you for these beautiful truths, these beautiful reminders that we can never lose what you've given us. Jesus, we have eternal security. I pray if there's anybody here who's doubting their faith, who's afraid of losing it, I just pray that they can rest in your unchanging promises, that they can rest in your power and know that they, that they are your children, that you have adopted us and called us out of this world. I just pray, Lord, if there's anybody here who's not in you, who has not repented from their sins, I pray, Lord, that you stir their hearts, that they can cry out to you and, and just be aware of, of just their sin in their life, that they haven't been living in, in a way that's honoring you, I pray, Lord, that you can guide them to repentance and they can know you as Lord and Savior. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you for your unchanging promises. We love you so much. In your name we pray, amen.